everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. The British accent really makes them believable, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I took a whole class on textual criticism, and it was, I was so glazed over most of the time. But I do have a favorite papyrus um, fragment. And you were like, what? Okay, so the earlier, he mentioned we have a few little fragments of the New Testament uh, that are like somewhere between 30 and 50, did he say, years after the original manuscripts were written. Uh, P52 is the dated to around 120. It's a little fragment of one of John, uh, one, two or three verses of the Gospel of John, which was actually the last of the Gospels that were written. Like there were, in, in a Bible, you'll find four different Gospels. John was typically dated to be like 80 to 90 AD. And so there's actually a very short gap between evidence that the Gospel of John is being circulated. And of course, it's on papyrus and that's, you know, we know that papyrus kind of lasts the longest. And um, anyway, I, I think as Nikki Gumbel, who is a barrister or a lawyer, said, you know, we, we sometimes try to approach faith as if it's science, but we can't apply the scientific method to history. It's much more like what a jury does or what a historian does in terms of looking for evidence. And it comes to a point where, there's enough evidence that we can trust that this event really happened. So in the case of Jesus, we actually have four books that are directly linked to eyewitness accounts that we find in our Bible, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John being one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and Mark being probably a companion of Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples, and Luke, who doesn't claim to be a disciple, but says, I'm a doctor, and I went to eyewitnesses to record the accounts of what they say. So like a good lawyer, he went and found people who witnessed the event. And then, of course, Paul, who writes a good portion of the New Testament, and what his writings, like Galatians, Ephesians, First and Second Corinthians, actually were written before the Gospels were written. And we, we trust Paul because he had the other, well, at this point, 11 disciples saying, yeah, he actually, what he's saying lines up with the Jesus we knew. No. So as Paul looks at the person and teaching of Jesus and tries to apply it theologically and practically to the early church, we have Luke saying, yeah, the, the other apostles are actually saying, Paul's right. Like, this is, this is the Jesus we knew, even though Paul never met Jesus prior to his death and resurrection. He does have Jesus appear to him in a vision and passes on some like, well, what we find out to be pretty important applications. So this is a little bit different of a talk because it's a little bit headier. And here in the vineyard, we actually tend toward the experiential and the supernatural, but I know that not everybody is wired that way. And so try to keep with me as best you can if this is not the way that you're wired. And I'm going to bring up one more kind of just little nuance uh, before we move on. So some of you, you remember of like maybe it was 10 or 20 years ago, the Gospel of Thomas. 
became, it was all over the news. And they're like, oh, look, there's this other account. And it describes a very different Jesus. Why don't we read the Gospel of Thomas? Do you guys know? Well, there's, there's basically two reasons we don't read the Gospel of Thomas. It's because the Gospel of Thomas is not affirmed by the disciples of the disciples. So Jesus comes to earth. He has 12 disciples plus a bunch of other people following him. Those disciples have disciples. I'm going to put up some really strange names. Polycarp, Clement, and Ignatius. And if you took our early church history uh, theology class, you know who I'm talking about, if you remember. But these guys actually are, again, directly one, one degree down from Jesus' disciples. So Clement is a disciple of Paul, Polycarp of John. I believe Ignatius was a disciple of Peter. But they're, they're quoting these other New Testament books, but never does any phrase or sentence come in from the Gospel of Thomas. But these guys end up quoting like little portions of most of the books that we now consider the New Testament. But the other reason we don't read Thomas is because when you read Thomas, you're like, oh, this guy is actually writing Greek philosophy with words of Jesus pretending to be one of his disciples. It just doesn't line up. It doesn't match up. Whereas the other gospel accounts sound like they're using Jewish references because Jesus was Jewish. Okay, so trying to point toward the credibility of the texts that we have, of the sources that we have, we have Jesus' friends and people who lived very near the time of Jesus going to eyewitnesses saying, what in the world happened? And what, was, what did Jesus say? And what, you believe that he was the son of God and that he raised from the dead? Tell me more. So I would like to read just one passage. And I think the main point of uh, looking at the words of Jesus and the events of Jesus' life is that today a lot of people will say, oh, I really like what Jesus said. Like he was a great moral teacher. That stuff about loving your neighbor, loving your enemies. I mean, revolutionary to, to make such a claim. And in terms of moral teaching, nobody has outdone him in 2,000 years. But, you know, he, I don't believe he was God. He was just a good teacher. Except for when you look at what Jesus said, all of his teachings point toward himself. He doesn't say only do this and that and this other thing and you will find God. He says, I am the way. Uh, so we, we end up with this little conundrum, but let's read just one of the accounts of what Jesus says about himself and what his opponents accuse him of saying. So would you guys just stand up with me a second? Uh, some of you maybe aren't sure about what you believe, but we're, we're, at, we're asking you to uh, try it on, and we stand because we trust the Bible, but also we want to honor the one who is trying to uh, reveal himself to us through these words. So I'm going to read from Mark, or sorry, from John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. John says, it was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah the festival of dedication, which actually is a festival that celebrates the uh, Maccabean revolt against the Greeks who had come and defiled the temple. So like very messianic, very like, ooh, let's overthrow the oppressors, very like 
we should get rid of the Romans now, if, if you kind of know what's going on in the story. But this is in the air. And it says, Jesus was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. And the people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, if you're the one to throw out the Romans, if you're the one who we're going to call king, the anointed one, tell us plainly. And Jesus replied, I have already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is in the work I do in my father's name. But you don't believe in me because you are not my sheep. My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand. The father and I are one. Now, once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus said, at my father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? And they replied, we're, not, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You are a mere man and claim to be God. So let me just pray a second. Come Holy Spirit. We ask that you would reveal truth to us. We ask that you would build faith and hope and love that you would strengthen us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So, here we have Jesus' opponents accusing Jesus of being God. They're doing this because, well, he says a couple of things that, again, are not typical for, a typical, for the regular old you know, prophet or or a religious teacher. He's not saying, follow these 10 commandments and you will live. He's saying, I give eternal life. And at the end, he says, I am the father are one. Now, this is especially poignant. This, this is like a little jab to the ribs to the Jewish religious leaders because their most important Bible verse for them typically would, be, would have been considered Deuteronomy 6 where it says, Shema Israel, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so Jesus invokes that passage by saying, I and the Father are one. Like together, we are God. And the Holy Spirit, who would be considered by the early church and most Christians today as another part of the oneness of God, like just to kind of jump ahead in the story, like that's what we consider to be the Trinity. And we, the Trinity is kind of a hard belief to wrestle with. And if you're new to faith, I'm not asking you to go there today or right now, but it's beautiful because it describes how real, true, authentic love can work between three people. So before there was anything else, there was God, and he didn't need anything else because of the love that could exist between the three persons of the Trinity. Now, here's, here's a little bit of overview to show you more of how Jesus' teachings actually point to himself as uh, the source of life. So, for instance, he says, I am the bread of life, 
Or if the sun sets you free, talking about himself, you are truly free. Or I am the light of the world. Or I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or come to me, right? Don't, don't go just to God who, who is out there. Come to me who I am the face of God. I am the way to God. Receive me and receive God. Welcome me, welcome God. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So you have all these examples of Jesus' teaching pointing to himself, which, again, is just, it'd be crazy. If I was saying, follow me, I am the source of life, you'd say, see you later. But there's something about Jesus. It was in the, in the miracles he performed, and even, even after all those miracles, you guys know the, the disciples were very confused and afraid at the point of Jesus' death. But they came to believe these words about Jesus because when they witnessed an empty tomb and saw a resurrected Jesus, according to their own account, everything changed for them. And you find ordinary people who are afraid and timid and always misunderstanding and getting it wrong being filled then by the Spirit of God and going out and performing the same kind of miracles that Jesus did. Again, these are what the eyewitness accounts are saying. Another really profound thing about what Jesus says, though, is from Mark 2. And you can turn there if you want. Uh, and, and this is just one example of Jesus doing things that mere humans shouldn't be able to do. And people who know what's going on around him get really mad at Jesus because of the words that he speaks. So in Mark chapter 2, there is a paralytic that is brought to Jesus because his friends dig through a roof and they lower him down and Jesus looks at him and in verse 5 of Mark 2 he says it says seeing their faith Jesus said to the paralyzed man my child your sins are forgiven now here's the problem with this statement it comes again from his opponents some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves what is he saying this is blasphemy this is like cursing God this in our law is punishable by death. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew what he was saying. And they were right. And Jesus was making a claim. And so you don't get off the hook by saying, I like Jesus' teachings. He seemed like a pretty good dude. But I don't think he was more than human. I don't think he raised from the dead. Uh, Bono, you kids know who Bono is? And it, who's Bono? You too, rock and roll. Okay, again, a little bit. I, I listened to Bono on iTunes back in the day. Uh, now I was even a little late. But Bono says this, it's a defining question. Who was Christ? And I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. He was crucified because he said that. He was the son of God. So either he was the son of God or he was nuts. And he could be a few other things too, other than nuts. Like he could be a con artist. In fact, his, his accusers say that in John 10, prior to our passage. They say, uh, he must be a demon. He's out of his mind. So there are these other options. Like maybe he was just fooling everybody. Maybe, for instance, uh, the resurrection was a big sham. But I don't think that's an, an honest conclusion. Now, I'm not saying that you can prove the 
Uh, I'm not saying you can prove the resurrection, right? Because, because we weren't there, we, we can't see it with our own eyes. But I don't think that means it's unreasonable to believe in the resurrection because of the evidence that points to it. So, for instance, what could have happened for there to be an empty tomb? Well, maybe the disciples stole the body. The problem with that theory is that if it's a big con by the disciples, and the disciples then go on to not only suffer, but die because of that belief, and even after being given the opportunity to say, just just say it wasn't true, they, they are willing to put their life on the line because not only are, did they witness an event, they had witnessed an event that changed everything for them and had the power to change the world. And what you see over the course of 2,000 years is not that the church has been this beautiful, perfect institution, but over and over again, you've seen how God works through broken people to make substantial change in terms of human dignity and human rights and caring for the poor and the sick. Like millions and billions of people have had experiences of a resurrected Jesus, not of a nice idea that has led them to lay down everything like those first disciples, sell all their possessions, dedicate their life to missions, dedicate their life to the poor, because Jesus asked them to. Now, there, there's other explanations that, again, don't hold a lot of weight. Maybe you've looked into this yourself, but like maybe, you know, did robbers steal the body? But then the, the account says that the grave clothes were still in the tomb. Why would they leave the most valuable thing? Why would they take the body and not the grave clothes? Did the authorities steal the body? Well, then why didn't they use the body as evidence to show that the disciples were a bunch of frauds? Like there's, there's actually a lot of evidence, a lot of reasons uh, in a field called apologetics, and, and there are books that you can read. And so there, I know that there's a lot of stuff on the internet, on the History Channel, that, that tells a different story. But I would like you to consider for a moment that it really happened, and that smart, reasonable, thoughtful people have come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that the disciples were trustworthy eyewitnesses, uh, surprising <laughs> eyewitnesses to an event that changed the course of history because many of the, you know, these were, his disciples were tax IRS agents and fishermen and zealots and people who would never have come together for anything. Certainly not for a political rally, but around the person of Jesus, you have people from different socioeconomic classes and different political persuasions. Again, I'm just talking about the 12 disciples, not to mention the global spread of Christianity. Because you might, when you think of Christians, you might think, oh yeah, like white guys. Not true. The majority of Christians in the world don't look like me. The church is growing. People who say, Jesus is my Lord, it's, it's Korea, it's China, it's Africa, it's South America. And so it's not a particular set of teaching that appeals to a particular type of person. And it, it's, it's really a remarkable, I mean, there's nothing like it in the world. 
like the person of Jesus that can bring so many people so different from for so long across history. Now, for some of you, you're grappling with it, uh, grappling with truth, grappling with faith, and that's okay. Uh, I would I would encourage you to keep digging, and I wanna I wanna just tell a story from my own childhood. So I lived in a house that was really old, like over 100 years old, and it had concrete blocks as a basement foundation. Those started to cave in because of the weight of the dirt around it. So there was an outside force putting pressure on what what we all thought was sturdy, right? So some of you have had faith and you've thought that it was sturdy, but there's been so much pressure the last few years or the last few weeks or the last few months that it feels like it's starting to cave in. Now, my dad dug this big hole about six foot deep around the entire house, minus like the front door, because he needed to do something to prevent the whole house from falling down. Again, using this as a metaphor for your faith, perhaps. In order to get that wall sturdy, he had to drill through the wall, which seems like a bad idea, right? So we have a wall, let's poke holes in it. That'll work, except that wasn't the only thing. So through those holes, he put steel rods, and on the other side of those steel rods, he put little plates. They're they're, uh, what are called anchors. And they attach to something outside of themselves, in order to hold the, the foundation of the house up. So for you too, not Bono's you too, for you also, you might find that there are things that you thought were true that aren't actually the foundation of your faith. Like maybe it has to do with a particular belief or doctrine that you were taught in church. Maybe it has to do because with like, you're trying to reconcile Genesis 1 with what like evolutionary science is teaching and how how do I do this? Do I like knock the whole house down? Do I knock the foundation down? Or is it possible that there are these places in your faith that you thought were sure and certain that actually need to be poked through and anchored in a different place or in a different way? So I would I would encourage you to do a little digging. <laughs> I would encourage you to find the weak spots in your wall and ask the question, is this really worth knocking the whole house down for? Are there different ways to think about this or that um, that I can find people or resources or maybe it's an experience simply of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's remembering, oh yeah, I had that thing happen in high school and I haven't thought about it for a while. But like for me in particular, when I had a major like question of faith, like, God, are you out there? I felt like I received a vision. And I've needed more than that vision of God saying, I'm here and I love you, to sustain faith over 30 years. Yep. But that's one of the anchor points that I have. And we, most of us need more than one anchor point, okay? So don't just think, oh, I have an anchor. I had that one thing that happened a long time ago. That's going to keep the walls of my faith up. No, I'm saying... Keep looking for places to anchor, keep digging, and find trustworthy guides and resources to help you on this journey. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. 
We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.